I don't know if you've ever heard the words before, but it's called the world's longest hatred. And there's no question at all that there's one group of people throughout many, many years, thousands of years of human history who have been mistreated more than any other people. And that's why it's called the longest hatred. It's the hatred of Jewish people. Let me tell you a few things about it. There are four aspects to the hatred of Jewish people. By the way, almost every country on earth has expelled the Jewish people. Almost every country on earth. Unbelievably. It's the longest hatred in the world, lasting thousands and thousands of years. It's universal. That is, it is a hatred that you find in almost every single country of the world today. It is intense. It is so intense that it has resulted in the killing of Jewish people in numbers that are unbelievably great, including, Regina said thousands. No, the number is six million. During the 30s and 40s, six million Jewish people were killed, over a million children by the Nazi regime in Germany. And nobody knows exactly why people hate the Jews. That makes it even worse. There's no, no real reason for it. Now, historians, and there are many of these, they have looked at the hatred of Jewish people throughout all of human history, going back to Bible times, and they wonder why. Why is it that this little tiny group of people, do you know, they, do you know how many Jewish people there are in the world, by the way? Do you know the number? It's about uh, 15 to 18 million. That's it. And do you know how many people are in the world today? 7.5 billion people. Which means you don't see a Jewish people around a person here. Hardly ever. There's so few. And yet this one little tiny group of people, one of the smallest people groups on earth, is the most hated people on earth. Why? Well, historians say there's six reasons. I think they're wrong. I think there's a seventh reason, but they don't usually say the seventh, and I'll tell you what that is. The first reason is economic. People hate the Jews because they have so much wealth and power. And of course, people who have money and power, we don't like them. That's typical. Second, as Regina said with the children, the Jewish people believe that they are God's chosen people. And when someone says, well, I'm the chosen child in your family, do the rest of your siblings like you? No. If you're the chosen one, you're not liked, just for this fact that you think you're special. I'm special. Try that in your family. See how well that works. It doesn't work. Thirdly, the Jewish people have regularly been used as a scapegoat. They have been blamed for problems that they had nothing to do with, but they're blamed for it. Of course, that's a common phenomenon. One of the ones that's most odious of all is Jewish people have been persecuted for the last 2,000 years because it is said that they are the ones who killed Christ. The word for that is called deicide, which means killing God. They are the God killers. And because they have killed God, some people think you can kill them, which of course is ridiculous. Fifth, they're outsiders. They're, 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 they're different. And when somebody's different than you, you often don't like them. 
And the sixth reason is we hate the Jews because some say they're an inferior race. That's what Hitler said in Nazi Germany. The Aryans, the Germans are the superior race and the Jewish people are the inferior race. A bunch of baloney, but that's what they said. It seems to me, however, that there's a seventh reason. And this is the most significant one of all. The seventh reason is the hatred of the Jews has spiritual roots. It is ultimately perpetrated by the hater of all humanity, the evil one, the devil himself. It seems to me that that's the only legitimate reason for the hatred of the Jewish people. But Anne Frank, you all know who she is, of course, this woman in, um, in, in, in Europe, in, in Holland, who was um, ultimately killed by the, Germ the Germans, Nazis in the concentration camp. She wrote this in her diary. Who has made us Jews different from all other people? Who has allowed us to suffer so terribly up until now? It is God who has made us as we are. And it will be God, too, who will raise us up again. Who knows? It might even be our religion from which the world and all peoples learn good. And for that reason, and only that reason, do we suffer. We can never be just Netherlanders or just English or representatives of any country for that matter. We will always remain Jews. And what did that cost her? It cost her her life. She was killed as a young little girl. I, I mentioned to Regina, and she brought it up with the children this morning. I don't know if you know, um, Americans, we're rather insular. We don't usually know when things happen around our world unless a catastrophe happens in Afghanistan that involves American people. We hear about that. But news around the world, we don't know much about it because we've got these two huge oceans that insulate us from the rest of the world. But let me tell you what's happening in the world right now. There's a large movement of hatred against Jewish people that is rising up again. So much so that there are many authors, Jewish authors, who are saying it's time to leave again. We must leave Europe quickly before we have another Holocaust. And so they're leaving, especially the country of France, in record numbers. And where are they going? Well, they're going to the only land that really will take them with open arms, the country of Israel. And it is this hatred of the Jewish people that we're going to deal with today in our text of Scripture from Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, and if you have a Bible, please turn with me there. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, who writes this passage, who himself is Jewish, is going to talk about God's plan for the Jewish people. So I titled this, What About the Jews? Now remember how Paul is writing in the book of Romans. He begins his book by showing that all human beings, religious people, moral people, all human beings fall short of God's glory. We all have sinned. And then he tells us about salvation, how because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins and was raised again from the dead, God offered salvation to all people. None of us deserve it. None of us. And then, having offered this free gift of salvation, not based on how religious we are, not based on our ethnic background, not based on how much money we give to the church, not based on whether we go to church or not, 
you could easily then say, well, God, I'll take your free gift, and I'm not going to do anything with it. God says, no, no, no. We're supposed to grow as Christians, and that's called sanctification. That means the process by which we grow as a Christian. But then the Apostle Paul in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is going to deal with the subject of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Because from what Paul has written, how the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, and it's a free gift but given by God, some might say, well, what about the Jewish people? God chose them as his special people. He raised them up. Is now God's plan of bringing salvation to the Gentiles plan B? And God's care of the Jewish people was plan A? Paul says, no. God has only had one plan. And so in chapter 9, he talks about the past, Israel's past, the past of the Jewish people. In chapter 10, he talks about what's happening in the present. And now chapter 11 today, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with what is God's plan for the people of Israel in the future. That's chapter 9, uh, chapter 11 rather. Now the, the main point is this. The criticism that Paul could have received at this point was, God has, the, the Jewish people have rejected God's offer of salvation. Therefore, God has rejected them. And Paul says, not a chance. God has never rejected his people. And now Romans chapter 11 is going to show us step after step after step why God has not rejected his people. And in fact, he has a plan for his people that is wise and incredibly good. So today we're going to look at the plan of God for the Jewish people and see what application it has to us, because it does. Here's where it starts in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Romans 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? There's the question. By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. There's where he starts. Did God reject his people? What? He didn't reject me, Paul says. I'm Jewish. He is example number one. And remember, the Apostle Paul tells us in the Bible his background. He said, I was, I was, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm, I was zealous for the law of God. I was one of the most well-educated Jews in the world at my time. And God brought me into his family. Did God reject his people? No. How do I know? I'm Jewish. That's where he starts. Then he asks again, did God reject his people? No. He says, I am one. But he goes on. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Now, let me tell you a bit about that passage. We can just leave this slide right there. Um, Elijah was the great prophet of God around the year 800 BC to the nation of Israel. And he was like a lone person. The whole nation was under the, the rule of a king named Ahab and his marvelous wife, Maleficent. Her name was Jezebel. Evil, evil, evil people. 
They had moved the whole nation from the worship of the true God to the worship of the Canaanite idol Baal. The whole nation. And Elijah was called by God to say, this is wrong, this is wrong. And no one listened to him until he was on Mount Carmel. And there was a contest between Elijah himself and 400 prophets of Baal. And God showed who's the true prophet. It was Elijah. But after that event, as, as he experienced this incredible victory from God, Jezebel, the queen, said, I'm going to kill that guy before this day ends. Kill him. What did Elijah do? He ran for his life. And he hid. And when he ran for his life and he ran out of steam, he laid down and says, God, I'm ready to die. I'm the only person in the whole country who's following you and no one's listening to me and take me. In fact, he said that twice. He said, oh, God, I've been very zealous for you. I've done this and this and this, and I'm the only person in all of Israel following you. And God lets him say that a couple of times. And finally, at the end of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, God says, Elijah, by the way, um, I have 7,000 people in Israel who are following me faithfully. See, Elijah thought he was the only one. He was, not, he was wrong by 7,000. He was way off. Here's how the rest of it. How he appealed to God against Israel. Look at what it says here. Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And here's God's response. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then he goes on. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What's the point? The first point that Paul points out in writing about God's plan for the Jewish people is that God has always had a remnant of Jewish people faithfully following him. What does always mean? From the time of Abraham to this very day, 4,000 years later, God has always had a group of Jewish people faithfully following him and a group larger than you think. Remember, Elijah thought it was one. The true number was 7,000. That's the first principle. Now, by the way, um, for, for those people who are, are um, for, for a Christian, and by the way, I don't know if you know this. I hope you don't, but I'm sure you do. Most hatred of Jewish people throughout history, most of it, has been perpetrated by people who call themselves Christians. Almost all of the hatred of Jewish people throughout history has been perpetrated by people who call themselves Christians. That is sad. That's not sad. That's horrific. Because if there's any group of people who, who, should, be, who should not be anti-Semitic, it should be us. Because to do so is to deny our spiritual roots. Our Savior, Jesus, is Jewish. Our greatest proponent of Christianity, Paul, 
is Jewish. All of the early believers, every single one, for 10 years to the tune of thousands and tens of thousands, all were Jewish. All of our foundation as Christians is Jewish. And for us not to realize that, and for us not to be grateful for that, is like one of the most dumb things we could ever do. And yet, we've done it consistently for 2,000 years now. God have mercy on us because we are massively at fault. Well, the Apostle Paul then moves on. And he's going to say that God's plan for Israel has always included Jewish people who are part of his kingdom. But there's a sad reality. The sad reality is that when people reject God's offer of salvation by grace, that means he offers it not based on what you've done, but based on what Jesus did for us. When you reject the offer of salvation by grace and you shift to believing that we have to do certain things to make ourselves acceptable to God, when you do that, the result is not going to be good for your heart. Here's what it says next. This is verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. What they sought was right standing before God, and how did they seek to find it? By following the rules. But they didn't find it. The elect among them, these are Jewish people. There were people among the Jewish people who realized, no, we can't follow the law of God. No one follows the law of God. In fact, the law of God makes you worse, not better. The elect from them did, but others were hardened. When you seek to get right standing before God based on your works, not God's gift of salvation, your heart will become hard. And I would submit to you, you will become dishonest because you'll have to start lying to yourself about how good you really are. And in truth, we know we're not. He goes on. As it is written. Now he's going to quote um, some passages um, from Isaiah, first of all. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. Now, um, the, the phrase, the spirit of stupor, literally means to sting someone with the result that they become numb. Um, we've all been to a dentist and had um, our, our, our mouths taken care of. What do they do first? They, they give you a shot. They sting you like a mosquito. They sting you, which numbs that portion of your mouth so that the dentist then can do the work on your teeth without all the pain that would normally take place. Well, that's what God has done. Um, it says God gave them a spirit of stupor. Once you reject the gospel, your heart becomes hardened and you become stuporous, I guess you'd say. You, you don't see properly anymore. A spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. So Paul's bringing it up to the time that he lives, and he writes this around the year 57 AD. And then he goes on. 
And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And he goes on, May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This is quoted from one of David's Psalms where he speaks about those who have stabbed him in the back. Not literally, but figuratively. And he says, oh God, what they've done to me is so horribly wrong. God, don't you see what they've done to me is wrong? Aren't you going to do something about it? That's from the psalm here. And Paul quotes this psalm. He says, this is what happens. When a people, including any of us, we reject God's method of making us right with God based on God's gift, God's grace, God's righteousness, not our gifts, our works, our righteousness. Once you reject God's means of salvation, something happens to your heart and you become numb to to spiritual truth, unfortunately. The rejection of God's grace righteousness results in the hardening of the human heart and the blinding of our spiritual eyes. So Paul says, in the plan of God, when the the Jewish religion, not all the Jewish people, when the Jewish religion rejected righteousness from God and replaced it with righteousness from myself, what happened? Their hearts became hard and their eyes became blind. That's pretty sad. But that's not the end of the story. Why did God let that happen? What's he up to? What's his plan? That's what he's going to address next. Because God says, this is my plan. I'm going to allow their hearts to become hard and their eyes to become blind for a while so that their rejection can result in the Gentiles' acceptance, which will then cause the Jewish people to become envious and will bring them to the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but um, in my home, some in my family have what's called food envy. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Here's what happens. It happens at a restaurant. You go to the restaurant, you look at the menu, and you order what you want. And then once you get your food... This happens all the time in my family. They look at my plate and said, I want that instead of what I got. Food envy. And that's what God is trying to do here. This next passage is going to tell us that God is going to use bringing the gospel to Gentile people to stimulate spiritual envy among the Jewish people. Look at what he says. Here's the next verses. Again, I ask, did they stumble, that's the Jewish people, as to fall beyond recovery? Is this blindness, is this hardness beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's what he says. It goes on. But if their transgression of the Jewish people means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater 
will their full inclusion, the bringing the Jewish people in, bring? And it goes on. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And it goes on. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So did you pick up that? Here's the sequence. Let me remind you of what he just said. The Jewish nation at large, not individuals at large, rejected seeing Jesus as their Messiah. That was rejected. And now temporarily, because of their rejection of the Messiah and the gospel, their hearts have become hardened. And while their hearts have become hardened, the gospel has been brought to the Gentiles. And Paul says, I am the main apostle to do that. And so now the riches of God's reconciliation have been brought not just from the Jewish people, but to the whole wide world. And now, as the Jewish people see the gospel of the one true living God being brought to the whole world, they will become envious. The result will be they will accept the gospel and they will be life from the dead. The conversion of the Jewish people, uh, uh, the conversion of Gentiles during this time now of the church is to design to bring Jewish people to envy so that they will desire what Gentile Christians have. There's a man named Stephen Kreloff. He is in a, in a magazine that I received called Israel My Glory. He's Jewish, and this is what he wrote. During the church age, God's primary method for bringing Jewish people to Christ is through godly Gentile Christians. I came to Christ because a Gentile believer's life was spiritually attractive. When I realized that his life was characterized by peace, joy, satisfaction, purpose, and love, I was moved to jealousy. I wanted what he had. The reality of Christ in his life revealed the emptiness of my life. And he became a Christian, a Jewish Christian. The obvious question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is my life as a Christian sufficiently attractive that someone of another religious faith would look at me and say, I want that. You know where it took place? It was not many people, but it was incredibly powerful. You, have you heard of the name of Corey Ten Boom? The Ten Boom family, they were watchmakers in the, the little town of Harlem near Amsterdam. And when the Nazis came in and took over Holland, they required all of the Jewish people to wear a yellow star, the Star of David, so that they could be identified, persecuted, rounded up, and killed. What did the Ten Boom family do? They're not Jewish. But they immediately got for themselves some stars of David and they started to wear them. 
the father and his two daughters, including Corey Ten Boom. And they not only did that, they said, we identified our, 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 our Savior, Jesus, is Jewish. All of the early believers are Jewish. The foundation of the Christian faith is Jewish. How dare they persecute the people of my Lord? We will identify with them. Well, of course, they got into trouble. Eventually, they started to hide Jewish people in their home. They were found out. They were put into concentration camps. And Father Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom were killed. Corey made it out alive. And then she wrote her book, her famous book, The Hiding Place, where they hid Jews. That is powerful. When the rubber meets the road, do we step out of our way to protect people because they're illegitimately hurt by our society? Would we be the kind of people in a society that says, well, you can persecute so-and-so, even people who don't believe what we believe? Are we still willing to stand up and say, no, no, we don't bully anybody. We don't persecute anybody. We stand we, we stand for the love of Jesus Christ for all people, even if we don't agree with what they say. That is attractive to people. So the Apostle Paul says, in the plan of God, his plan is to so, in, so invigorate Christians with the Holy Spirit that our lives are sufficiently attractive that when Jewish people see us, they will be drawn to our Messiah and their Messiah as well. How's it working? Unfortunately, not very well. Well, now the Apostle Paul addresses this situation. The Jewish people are now in the early Christian church, be, have, are quickly becoming a minority. And the Gentiles are becoming a massive majority. And now the massive majority is starting to look down their nose at the minority from which the, the Christian faith emerged. Paul now is going to nail the arrogance of any of us who think that we're hot stuff. Here's what he says. This is verses 16. If the part of the dough offered is as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now watch what he's going to do. He's going to give an analogy of a vine or of, of a tree. Here's what it goes. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Next slide says, do not consider yourselves to be superior to these other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. It goes on. You will say that branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. 
for God is able to graft them in again. Well, did you pick up, did you see the analogy? Let me make it clear for you. There is an olive tree. By the way, the olive tree is the symbol, the ancient symbol of the nation of Israel. It's the most dominant tree in the Mediterranean is the olive tree. God says, there was an olive tree, which was the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. But because of their rejection of the Messiah, it was cut off. So what did God do? He did not uproot it. He cut it off. The stem was cut off. So then God went out and found some wild olive shoots. And by the way, Wild olive shoots generally do not produce fruit in the Middle East. So God took a wild olive shoot that's a piece of junk and he grafted it into that stump of Israel. And guess what happened? Those branches started to develop fruit, more fruit, much fruit, huge amount of fruit. But they're not part of the original olive tree. And so then, if in fact, now the, the, this, this stump is full of these wild olive branches that have been grafted in, producing fruit, but when, if they stop producing fruit, as the Bible says, there will be a great apostasy at the end of the age. Many Christians will turn away from God. They will be cut off. And guess what God will do? He's going to then take olive branches, not of the wild olive variety, but of the natural variety. He's going to graft them into the stump. And what do you think they're going to do? They're going to be even more fruitful because they are not wild olive branches. They are part of the original olive tree. So God's point is, in this section is, God is not through with his people. He's grafted us in temporarily. But remember who you are. You are not naturally the people of God, you Gentiles. And how dare you think, hey, we're hot stuff. Those Jewish people, they're lower than we are. After all, we're the, we're the biggest number now. How don't you realize that you're wild? You can't bear anything unless you are connected to the stump of Israel. That's what God has done. Wow. There's a warning against uh, arrogance on our part. The same man who was the Jewish man said this, every Gentile should have a keen interest in the future of the Jewish people. Without a firm conviction in a future plan for Israel, Gentiles can open themselves up to pride and arrogance toward the Jew, which is ridiculous. Well, the passage is now going to end with this section I'm going to go through quickly because this is what God's plan is in the future. This is verses 25 to 32. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In other words, this stump has been, has had all these wild shoots grafted into it, bringing Gentile fruit, Gentile fruit, Gentile fruit. But that's not the end. There's going to some, come some point when this Stump has produced branches that cover the whole world and fruit that goes to every single ethnic group on earth. And when the full number of Gentiles has come in, this is what's next. And in this way, all Israel 
will be saved. Does that mean every Jewish person? I've never seen any commentator say that. But there will be, at some point in human history, toward the end of the age, there will be a massive harvest of Jewish people who will come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Messiah. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. God will be behind this. And it goes on. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gift and God's call are irrevocable. Goes on. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all of them. I think I'm going to just stop right there um, and because I think you get the, this section. Um, Someone wrote this. Listen to this statement. Every man must be damned if he is to be justified. If you are innocent, you can't be justified. <laughs> because the only one that can be justified is someone who's guilty. And so the only prayer we have is people that we can be justified before God is that we understand that like the Jewish people and like all of us as Gentiles, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Dr. William Culbertson was the, um, the president of Moody Bible Institute, and he met with the Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. He's the George Washington of Israel. And upon returning to the United States, Dr. Culbertson wrote the following thank you note to the Prime Minister of Israel. Quote, Our visit to Israel was very wonderful. I continue to marvel at the initiative, the industry, and the utter devotion of the people to work of the rebuilding of, of Israel. It is a source of inspiration indeed. Some of us, of course, believe that this could well be the prelude to what the Old Testament prophets predicted. You manifested such a complete grasp of the religious side of the matter that I am sure that you know that some of us do believe in a personal Messiah and that there are days of great glory awaiting your nation. That's what he wrote. Well, here's how the passage of Scripture ends, verses 33 to 36. The Apostle Paul said this plan, that God has a plan for his people and it's a plan that's going to result in vast numbers of Jewish people as well as Gentiles around the whole world embracing the gospel. And then all he can do is end with a doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him 
be glory forever. Amen. And so, what does God say to us? Well, God has not rejected his people. Our founder is Jewish. Our greatest proponent of the faith, Paul, is Jewish. But God has always had a remnant of Jewish people who have been part of his chosen people, but only a a remnant. All of the early roots of our faith and many of the subsequent fruits are Jewish. Jewish as well as Gentile rejection of Jesus results in heart hardening and eye darkening. Gentile acceptance of the gospel is intended by God to envy, to cause Jewish people to envy what we have. So the application for us is live such a life that when people see you, your family, your home, they would say, I want what you have. We're supposed to live that way. God, the divine horticulturalist, is in the business of grafting Gentile believers into the root of his chosen people. No, the Gentile Christian church has not replaced Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. And one day, large numbers of Jewish people will acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. Frederick the Great, back in the 1700s, was the king of Prussia. And he asked his chaplain to give him the strongest evidence for the Christian faith. And his chaplain's reply was, Israel. He says, long after other civilizations have expired, the Jewish people stand as a testimony to the trustworthiness of the word of God. Very strong evidence indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow. How amazing is your plan. It's a mystery to us. We don't know how you're working it all out. But you are up to something really good. Because we know from what you've written to us that you don't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And my prayer, Heavenly Father, for all of us in this place here today is that not a one of us would eternally perish, but every one of us would come to repentance. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would so work among us that we would see our need of Jesus and we would embrace Jesus and we would follow Jesus and we would represent Jesus and that you, as a result, would bring other people to know Jesus as we do. To that end, we pray in his name. Amen. Would you please stand with me? And we're going to conclude this morning with a our benediction. We are part of God's family because of a man named Abraham who 4,000 years ago believed God. God said, as a result, you're a righteous man. We want to follow in his footsteps. He's the first Jew. And we are the recipients of God's massive gifts to humanity through his chosen people, the Jewish people. So now go forth from this place and live a life like our Jewish Savior, Jesus.